Let's dig into First Peter. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll, we'll start. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glorious book, and we thank you for its reminder of the wonderful hope that we have, the grace that you have promised for the future, the inheritance that is assured. And Lord, may we live holy lives now. May we walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called so that you might be glorified. And may we do so ever aware that our walk is only possible because of the blood of your Son, whose blood was shed for us. Not that we would simply have a ticket to heaven after we live as we choose, but that we would be holy as you are holy. That our lives would be distinct. That we would be different. That we would be set apart from the rest of the world. The way that it functions. The way that it thinks. The way that it processes. May we truly be your disciples, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, we're on First Peter chapter 1 and we're picking up in verse 17. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 17. We last time um, dealt with the quotation from Leviticus 19, you shall be holy for I am holy. We've come from uh, the beginning of this book, the first 12 verses being this incredibly rich theological uh, foundation for the rest of the book. These truths that, that we have been born again, that the resurrection of Christ from the dead has assured this to be true, that we now have this hope we have this hope in Christ. And that this is where our focus should be. This is where our trust should be. And because of this, this, this theological foundation, because of this salvation that we have in Christ, the inheritance that is to come, because of all of this, our, our eyes, verse 13, are going to be set upon that hope to come. The grace that is ours is where we're going to be. We're going to be sober-minded. We're going to be ready to, to work at this. And then, as last week, we saw the basis of our walk as obedient children is to be holy as he is holy. And we looked last time briefly at Leviticus 19. I had Dana read that for us this morning. And I want us to turn back there now, because as we, as we come now into verse 17, we're coming from this foundation, be holy as I am holy. We're coming from that place, and so there are a few little things that I want us to pick up uh, from uh, that passage that we shall uh, look at together now. So, Leviticus chapter 19 do like us reading through these passages of scripture. I think it's healthy for us. I think that uh, we would do well to, to hear the summary of what it means to love your neighbor, to treat people well. I think it's helpful in this day and age, in the culture that we're in, to be reminded of the importance of uh, looking after the poor and the sojourner. That, that means immigrant, by the way, just in case you didn't know. And as we look at this whole passage, the, the gist of, Revela uh, of Leviticus 19 is um, the holiness of God and how the holiness of God impacts upon us and how our lives must be holy too. Now, as I said last time, and I don't want to repeat the whole of last time's sermon, but I want us to understand that the Jewish mindset did not see one God and no other gods. Now, you're going to say, hold on a second, doesn't the, the famous Shema say, you know, there is one God, here is Israel, God is one. Yes, he's one in that he's one above the rest. The Bible would talk about him being God above other gods, king above other kings. They were very aware of the unseen realm, of the realm of the, the angels and the demons, the Elohim, the sons of God. They were very aware of all that. And, and, the, the issue is, is that God was holy. He was literally set apart. He was distinct. Sure, there are other spirit beings. 
some whom demand sacrifice and worship. But he is different from them all. As creator of them, as creator of all things, seen and unseen, he is above, he is beyond, and he is distinct in all his ways. And so the law that the Israelites were given, though it is so bizarre to us in many places, above all else it was there to say, you must be distinguished from people who worship other gods. You must be distinguished from people. You are associated with me, and you must be like me, and as I am set apart, you must be set apart too. And the way in which we're set apart in so many ways, or at least in the Israelites with the the, uh, regulations given to them under Mosaic law, these things were uh, spoken of here. I just want to draw your attention to a few things uh, from Leviticus 19 in context that I think Peter picks up on that we'll see in a moment. Firstly, I want you to see that when he says in verse 2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, that's what the Lord translates, Yahweh, the name of God, I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Okay, so immediately after that quotation, what's the first thing that said? Verse 3. Every one of you shall revere or honor his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths, I am Yahweh your God. Do not turn to idols or make yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am Yahweh your God. In this passage, one of the ways in they, they were to be distinct was by keeping of the commandments. And all of the, the ten commandments are contained within this passage. Notice the first one that's mentioned. Mothers and fathers. That's going to be relevant when we come back to 1 Peter. There's another part in here, though. There's several other parts in here that are interesting as well. But I want us to, uh, if we look a little bit ahead, go to verse 15. Verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you judge your neighbor. In other words, it doesn't matter if somebody can look after you if you do something for them. You treat people equally. It's, it's so easy for us to say, well, you know what? I could help this person or I could help that person. If I help this person, then they may be able to do me a favor later. You know, this is a person maybe who has uh, sway or with, with certain people or someone who has finances. or it, it would be good to invest in this person because I'll benefit from it later. But this person's got nothing to offer me. And it's incredible, I think, how often people make decisions instinctively Thinking along those, not think, uh, subconsciously thinking along those lines without even really being aware that they're doing so. That sometimes we really want to bless people who bless us. Now, it might not be because they've got lots of money or they've got lots of uh, uh, prestige. It might be simply the fact that here's a person who makes me happy, whereas this person, I don't really like their company, so why should I bless them? Because I don't get anything back from that. We, we are so instinctively selfish that we tend to work along those lines. But what, what is being said by Moses here in Leviticus, or by God to, to Israel through Moses in, in these commands, is the importance of making judgments that are impartial. Not being swayed by who people are. And again, Peter's going to pick up on that when we come back to First Peter. So there's just a couple of little things, because I want us to understand, and I keep repeating this to you, when somebody quotes a part of the Old Testament in the New, he's not simply quoting that one statement, he's pointing you to the context, and many of these other things are implied as well, as we'll see in 1 Peter. So switch back to 1 Peter, we'll see some of this as we move forwards. It is interesting to me that in the lead up to this statement, be holy as I am holy, um, That in verse 14, we are referred to as obedient children. And here in verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And again, it is interesting that immediately after be holy as I am holy in Leviticus, we go to mother and father, and immediately after be holy because I am holy in First Peter, we have a reference to father. That's not accidental. 
The point is this, that in the Jewish culture you were to honor your parents. That wasn't just simply a case of being obedient when you were younger, though obviously that was part of it. It stretched through the entirety of life, and in fact it was most often appropriated at the point when parents would get elderly, and the responsibility of children to look after their parents in their old age, just as the parents had previously looked after them. That was all part of honoring, because the family structure was so important, and the, the, uh, the value of honoring parents to the whole of society was emphasized. What Peter has been doing throughout this early stage of the book is he's been saying that you have been born again. You have a new life. That what you were is gone, and what you are now is new and different from what you were. And in your new life, who is your father? God. And so we honor him in the same way. And so he's linking these things together. And notice the other reference uh, or allusion perhaps to Leviticus 19 here is that if you call on him as father, the implication is that you do because, you know, we are born again into this holy family if you, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed. That's exactly what we just saw in Leviticus 19 and verse 15. The importance to be impartial. The importance not to treat people on the basis of what they can do for you. And God, of course, is the model of that impartiality. Now... I think it's very easy for Christians who are so used, we're so used to taking one verse out of context, and when we look at this verse, we say, hold on a second, God's going to judge us according to our deeds? And for Christians whose understanding of the gospel is perhaps very narrow or shallow or, or not very expansive yet, we kind of might, we might get a little flustered by that. We might say, well, I, I thought we were saved by our faith and not by our deeds. Well, you are but he's going to judge you according to your deeds. The good news is, is that all the deeds that you have done that are sinful, that the price for those sins have been paid for by the blood of Christ, that Christ was punished for those sins in your place, so there's no punishment left to be given. But nonetheless, we'll be judged according to our deeds. The scriptures are clear that we'll be rewarded for the things that we do. The good news for us is that the bad things that we do, we won't be punished for because Christ was punished in our place. But more on that in a, in a moment. But I think the, the, the emphasis here is that God is basically applying Leviticus 19 to God. He is the father who should be honored. And he is the one who judges impartially. And he judges you without basis of, of anything other than simple facts. This is where we will, you know, back in verse 13, we need to be sober-minded. Like the sober judge. We don't want to be distracted by feelings and emotions. But rather, we want to, we want to uh, live according to truth. And let our emotions come from that place. And so... When we look at this verse, in verse 17 now, with all that in mind, if we call on him a father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, so God is going to be fair and treat us fairly as he tells us to do. He's holy, we're to be holy. He says, therefore, conduct yourselves without, with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear is a funny thing in the Bible. Fear is a funny thing in the Bible. Half the time we're told not to do it, and half the time we're told to do it. And the reality is simply this. And, I, and by the way, it doesn't help if you have like these very loosely paraphrased translations where fear is translated as honor and things like that. That doesn't really help us. But at the same point, if you come from a background perhaps where you've, you've experienced you know, fear in the sense of abuse or something, then the idea of fearing God might not be a healthy thing for you. But what it's trying to communicate here is simply this. That when it comes to the end, the one who determines the course of your eternity is not your neighbor who you spent so long trying to impress. It's not your boss who you wanted to make sure you were in his, good or his or her good graces. It's not these people in the world that we want to be accepted by. It's none of these distractions that the only one whose opinion is going to matter at the end of the day is God. And therefore, we need to have a degree of fear about how we conduct our lives. 
We don't want to be walking around our lives living in, a, in a, some sort of blasé manner where it doesn't really matter what we do or what we say or how, what we think or how we are. Oh, because, you know, God's got it all covered. We're all, all our sins are forgiven. This has got nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And we, we stand at a time where generations of altar calls and overly simplistic gospel preaching has just created this, this falsehood that somehow, you know, you just make a commitment one day and, and you, 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 know, you, you intellectually agree with what uh, the preacher has said. Maybe you shed a tear when they play the music in a minor key. And, and you have some sort of reaction to a message. And that really, because you're there, saved and you're always going to be saved you can just live your life however you like Paul addresses that in Romans 6 do we, do we keep on sinning now because there's sufficient grace for it we, we sin more there's more grace we sin more there's more grace so we, we can keep on sinning right and Paul says by no means the whole point is that Christ has set us free from sin so that we can live these holy distinct separated from the rest of the world kind of lives and what Peter is saying to us here, as he urges us to live those holy lives, what he's saying to us is, look, the father needs to be honored, like all fathers. This is your new life. Here's your father. He's to be honored. And he is going to judge impartially as you should. And therefore, you want to be living your lives in lieu of what he is going to say about you, in lieu of what he is going to think about you, and not what the world, not what your friends not what those you, that you admire, not what your spouse or your children or anybody else for that matter thinks about you. But it's only what God thinks about you that matters. And so, that is his reminder. To live in fear of God. Don't fear other gods. Don't fear circumstances. Don't fear situations. Don't fear what looks uh, scary, but rather just fear God because he is in control, he is sovereign, and therefore you are to conduct yourselves, live a certain way, walk your walk with that fear of God, knowing that God is the only one whose opinion matters. Live with fear throughout your time of exile. Now, the word exile here is tricky because we know, as we spoke about right at the beginning of this book, that when he is talking about sojourners and exiles, he is talking to the Jews. The people he was writing to were literally sojourners. They were Jews who left the land and were now living in Asia Minor and elsewhere. They were those who would be separated from their people. They were exiled from them. Someone like me, where all my family and my motherland is thousands of miles away and, and I'm in a different place. It's kind of like that. You're, you're, you're an exile, so to speak. But at the same point, I think that here, as he, as he often does, he's starting to draw uh, an analogy whereby their literal physical exile is, uh, is analogous of their spiritual lives and all of our spiritual lives. That this world is not our home. We're just passing through, as the old song says. We are, we are living in this world, and it's like an illusion. It says to us, this is important, this is the value, this is, this is all that there is, when really, it's really the least important thing. This world is simply a chance for us to walk in faith, to obey God, who will ultimately judge the deeds that we live by. And so, as we live now in a time of exile, as we live in a time where people around us are not like us, we live in a time when the things that they say are okay, we don't think's okay. And, and frighteningly, we're living in an era where they're starting to say, you will agree with me or else. And we have to be distinct. We have to be separate. Our, I mean, if nothing else, guys, we've got to get our heads around this. That it is not our job to fit in. It is not our job to be acceptable to the gods of this world. It is our job to live in fear of God, to obey him, and to want to hear those words, well done, 
good and faithful servant. That's it. That's our lives. That's what we're, we're here for. It's a new life. It's a life we've been born again into. We are not of this world. We are exiles. So when you have all of that together in verse 17, you have um, God as our Father. We have multiple references in this section to us being children of God here. Verse 14, we're going to see it in verse 23 next week. Chapter 2, verse 2. We are God's children We are to live in fear of him. We are to walk in the way that we should live, being aware of the fact that we are surrounded in this exile by those who are not like us. Now, verse 18 continues in this thread and says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So, we have been ransomed. A price has been paid. We have been, we'll talk about that obviously in the next verse, but we've been ransomed specifically from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, at this point, many scholars will say, well, you know, there's not, you know, here is evidence that Peter's not writing to Jews, he's writing to Gentiles, and the sojourners were, was an analogy all from the beginning. I don't think that's the case. The forefathers of the Jews, spiritually speaking, literally, genetically speaking, were essentially the rabbis. Rabbinical Judaism. Pharisaism, if you like. With that form of Judaism, it was incredibly legalistic. Moses said, keep the Sabbath day holy. And the rabbis came up with 2,000 different ways, 2,000 plus different ways, to to keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath separate. Here's all your other days. And the Sabbath, under old covenant law, emphasizing, was, emphasizing, was separate from all the other days. Here's the separate day. You're to keep it distinct. And if you want to still keep the Sabbath, you're free to do so. But it's Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Anywho's. Now, I don't think anyone's going to stone you to death if you don't, so you're all right with that. But, so yes, it was old covenant law, but under that, that day was holy, that day was separate. Which then made you say, well, can I do this? Can I do that? And the Pharisees came up with 2,000 plus different ways that you could uh, or could not keep the Sabbath holy. There was the measurement of what a Sabbath day journey was, how far you could travel on a Sabbath, for example all the specifics of what qualified for work and what didn't qualify for work. Is it any wonder that Jesus said to the Jewish people of that day, come to me with your burdens and I will give you rest? If nothing else, he's scratching out about 90% of the commandments that they were trying to live by. That's worth remembering. Regulars will know my, my uh, loathing of legalism. And all that it entails. We have enough rules to keep without adding to them for our own clarification. Sometimes things aren't as clear as we like and we will live with that. We don't need to make up extra rules. But here, they had a a history where there was a lot of legalism. They had a history where there were rules and regulations. And sadly, those rules were futile. Now, I don't want to get distracted to talk about legalism in a general sense, but legalism is never profitable. It's all well and good having rules for life that aren't biblical that you impose upon yourselves. I'm never going to turn around to you if you say, every morning I'm going to set my alarm for 6 a.m. and get up to read my Bible. I'm never going to say, oh, you're legalist, don't do that. Make it 6.05 tomorrow. Go on, live wild. We are free to make whatever rules we like. But what we need to understand is that though sometimes setting restrictions upon ourselves can be productive and what have you, when we impose rules wholesale that the Bible does not impose upon everybody, there is nothing productive from that. And what happened is, is that the Jews were burdened by all of this, these rules and regulations and living. And so when the Messiah came, 
they completely missed him because of all the things within the law that were supposed to point to him had been lost. They weren't there thinking, what are all these sacrifices leading to? They're there thinking, I've got to do the sacrifice in this way and that way, and I mustn't travel too far, and I mustn't do this. And they were just overwhelmed by all the rules. And they completely lost the purpose of them. I tell you what, if you grow up in uh, religious circles, that can so easily be the case where Christianity is about doing this and not doing that, and you can get lost in all the rules, and the gospel can quite simply go missing. And what he's saying here is that the ways of those forefathers, the ways of rabbinical Judaism, the ways of all these additional rules and protections, which, which as Jesus pointed out, were so hypocritical because they would break their own rules in various ways, but that was futile. It didn't accomplish anything. It didn't get them nearer to God. They they started out saying, you know what, we really don't want to break the Sabbath, so how can we prevent ourselves from doing that? And And I've used this illustration before, but it's like having a bit of grass where God says, do not walk on the grass. And somehow that's insufficient, so to make sure no one does, we put a fence around the grass. And then you put up a sign saying, do not touch the fence, we don't want anyone getting too close. After a few years, you forget about the grass, and now the rule is don't touch the fence. And people are walking real close to that fence, so you need to now build another fence. And then say, do not touch this fence, because that will keep people away from that fence. And then another few years go by, and you completely forget about the the previous fence, let alone the grass. And and so you're like, people are getting really close to this second fence. You know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to build a third fence. And if you think that sounds silly, that is really how rabbinical Judaism works to this very day. That's why Jews don't mix, you know, meat and dairy, the Orthodox Jews on the same plates. It comes from this history of just adding rules and adding rules and completely forgetting why you started, where you started from because the last rule is now as sacrosanct as the first one was. That's futile. That's stupid. Now, I'm guessing that not many of us come from a history of Orthodox Judaism. But nonetheless, if we were not raised in Christ, then we live in a world where those around us, the influences upon us, are nevertheless futile. Though our circumstances may be different, the futility isn't. We live in a world that says things like, well, you want to be successful. You want to make as much money as you can. You want to acquire as much th- many things as you can. Futile. You want to live a life where you're loved by as many people as possible. Futile. The things that we instinctively pursue in this life are normally completely futile. They don't accomplish anything. Because ultimately, we exist to glorify God. And anything, no matter how good it looks, anything that distracts us from walking with God is futile. And so, getting back to the flow, he says, you're going to live, remember there's one command here, conduct yourselves, live a certain way. You're going to live with fear, knowing that you're free from this now. You've been ransomed. You haven't got to live this way anymore. Listen, for us as Christians to say, oh, but I want to keep on sinning, is as ridiculous as somebody letting you out of prison and you going back and hanging out in your cell every other Wednesday. I kind of miss the rats. It's it's crazy. We have been ransomed. A price was paid so that we no longer have to be there. And yet, we, like the Israelites of old, who when things got difficult in the wilderness said, oh, we're better off in Egypt. We do the same thing whenever we look at sin and we think of sin as somehow being better, being okay, being desirable. We're fools when we do that. We have been ransomed from that. We've been ransomed from futility, from futile ways, inherited from your forefathers. 
And uh, by the way, one other thing uh, before I forget it. Notice the repetition of inherited here. Notice this. We have inherited something from our forefathers, whomever they might be, and there is something that we have inherited from God. Do you remember back in verse, uh, verse uh, 4? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Choose your family. Choose your father. Choose who you will honor. Choose whom you will fear. Choose whom you will live your life for. This, Peter is delineating two clear ways. You can live according to this way. You can live in the world. You can live in fear of those around you. Or you can live in fear of God. You can conduct yourselves. You can, be, you can uh, walk in the fear of God. And you can have his inheritance rather than the inheritance that comes with this world. You can choose to be holy. Or you can choose not to be holy. You can choose to be distinct. Or you can choose to fit in. You can choose to be set apart or you can choose to be one with this world. It's quite a clear picture when it all comes together. The last thing that's said in this verse is that the inheritance from your forefathers, you've been redeemed from that, ransomed from that, but not with perishable things such as silver and gold. You don't need to turn there because I'm going to be very brief, but I just want to read to you where he is referencing. He's referencing here with that expression, Isaiah 52 and verse 3, where God says, For thus says Yahweh, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. You were sold for nothing, reference to them going into exile. You should be redeemed, you should be redeemed without money. Gold and silver aren't going to redeem you. And of course, when Isaiah 52 continues and into 53, what he is going to redeem them with becomes very clear. This is Peter building up the references to Isaiah. Next week we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40 because he makes a quote from Isaiah 40. A concept that is then repeated in Isaiah 55. He's kind of pushing us in that direction because once we hit chapter 2, the foundational text that Peter is building on is Isaiah 52 and 53 and the suffering servant. So we'll talk about that as we come. But that he's kind of nudging us along in that direction. He said, I told you you weren't going to be redeemed by money. He says, but you've been ransomed by something different. And what is that different thing? Here is our first link in to uh, Isaiah. Uh, not specifically, not a specific verse per se, but certainly the concepts. And this is something he's going to build on hugely in the next chapter. But what we have been ransomed by is the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Our redemption is in Christ. Redemption, if you recall, is not simply being set free. It is being under one master, in our case, sin, and a price being paid to that master, in a sense, that we might be set free and have a new master. Now, obviously, the analogy isn't perfect. The price is paid by Christ, essentially to God. It is the wrath of God that has to be appeased. But the price that is paid takes us from the slavery to sin to the slavery to God. There are no free people. We need to understand that biblically. There aren't free people. People say, I'm free, I can do whatever I like. No, you can't. You're bound by your sin. It's in every cell of your body, wrapped up in your DNA. There is within us all the urge to sin. And for those who are unredeemed, that is your master. You will do what makes you happy, what makes sense to you, what gives you satisfaction. You are completely bound to your sinful nature. But as Christians, we have been set free. The price has been paid by the sacrifice of Christ to set us free from sin and from death. The reference here to the Passover lamb, Exodus 12.5, Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 15, all of these verses are, are dealing with uh, this concept of the spotless lamb, that the Passover lamb, the one that protected the Jews from that 
the angel of death in that first Passover, that when Passover was then repeated concurrently, that the lamb had to be without blemish. Why? Because we are called to be holy as he is holy, and he is holy, and because he is holy, he's without blemish. And so when God came in Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, because he is God, he is without blemish. He is without sin. He is spotless. He lived the life that we could never live in our place. Remember that salvation is not simply our sins being forgiven. That there is in fact an exchange going on. Just as much as Christ takes our sin from us and he is punished for our sin in our place, in the same way he gives to us, in a judicial sense, his righteousness. That we are declared righteous though we never lived a righteous life. It is the least fair swap in the history of the universe. And so Christ... The spotless lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and we'll talk about this so much as we come into chapter 2, but he is the one that has set us free from, ransomed us, set us free from this previous futile life. Before we move on to these last two verses, just, just see the flow of this as a whole, okay? You being saved is nothing to do with a ticket to heaven. You being saved has got nothing to do with it being okay and not mattering if you sin because, heck, you know, Jesus has, has covered all your sins with his blood. That kind of cheap grace, the Bible knows nothing of. We have been set free from sin, not simply so that we're okay in the future, but that we are free from sin and slaves to God now. And just as he is holy, we've got to be holy. We've got to be distinct. And I, and I know, if you're like me, you know, when, you, when I was younger in the faith and I would read, be holy as I am holy. I mean, I would just, it's, it's like every time I read these verses in the Bible, someone would, you know, someone had, behind me had a stick and was just beating me on the back really hard, you know. Be holy as I am holy. Oh, you know, I am just, just feel condemned every time. Yes, in a sense, we're called to be perfect. But I think if you read holy as perfect here, it's not so helpful. Just keep seeing in your mind as you read this, the, the em emphasis on being distinct. Being distinct. Being different. We're not called to be of this world. We're called to be different. And us being saved directly impacts the conduct of our lives now. That God, our Father, is going to judge our deeds, that we'll be rewarded for the good that we do, and that we need to be living in a way that says, this is a follower of Christ, rather than this is just another person. Honestly, if you didn't wear any Christian paraphernalia, if you didn't speak Christianese, if you didn't have a fish on the bumper sticker of your car, would anybody know? Would the way that you treat the poor and the sojourner, would the way that you love your neighbor, would the way that you walk, would these things distinguish you from the rest of the world? It's a sobering thought. Distinction is such a key concept in all of this. Anyway, Peter has dealt with this point and now he's going to be distracted by the most wonderful distraction, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was foreknown, verse 20, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The, uh, the reference to the foundation of the world is again another little nudge towards Ephesians that we see so often in this first chapter of Peter. That here before even time began, that it was known, it was foreknown, it was part of the plan of God that Jesus would come. And not just that he would come, but that he would come as lamb. 
This is one of those truths that when you understand it is just utterly mind-blowing. That God, when he says, I, I believe to the angelic realm, to the council of angelic beings, when he says, let us make man in our image, he knew. He knew. When John then, then goes on to say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That Jesus is distinct from the Father, and yet he's as much God as the Father is, right? And he goes on to say in those early verses of his prologue, that nothing was created that Christ himself did not create. Right? So when we look back in Genesis, and we see God saying, let, let us make man in our image, and here is God, and he's, God is saying, okay, let's do this, and then he does it, he creates, who is it who's creating? Specifically, which person of the Trinity? That's Jesus Christ creating man, already knowing that that creation is going to require him to become a man and to die for our sins. I don't think I'm ever going to understand that. I don't think I'm ever going to understand that. Think about your life for a minute. Think about the things that you've done in your life, decisions that you've made, and the regrets that you might have in your life. And have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish I could go back and do that differently. I wish I could go back and make a different decision. I wish I could go back and, 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 and go in a different direction, do things differently than I did. Why do we normally think that? Because of the negative consequences of our decision. And yet, Christ knew that in creating us, that sin will come into the world, in creating us, that his plans would have to be adjusted again and again and again, and that ultimately it would mean the destruction of the world by the flood, the giving up of the nations, the, the raising up of the nation of Israel, the failure of Israel, and ultimately, Christ coming as a man, dying on a cross. And yet, he still chose to do it. We want to have a reboot. We want to go back and change things because we crave comfort. We worship a God of comfort. We want things to be better for us than they are. One of the hardest things in maturing in our faith is accepting the sovereignty of God and letting go of any desire to change things. And accepting that God has brought us on the path with all of its warts, with all of its scars, and that he's sovereign over every last bit of it. And trusting him. And trusting him. Why? Because that's what Christ did. Christ, knowing the pain, knowing the anguish, knowing the suffering, creates man. And he will glorify himself through all of that and through all of our lives. It's just the most astonishing thing. It's the most astonishing truth that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. We've already seen this, uh, this principle when we were dealing with verse 12 and angels wishing that they knew. We made a reference to 1 Corinthians and where Paul talks about the fact that things were hid from the angelic realm, that prophecies were clear and yet they were kind of a little unclear in places as well because Satan led Judas to betray Christ, to send him to the cross. Satan was not trying to keep Jesus from the cross. He was trying to get Jesus to the cross because he did not understand the purposes of God. He did not understand that his day of victory was actually his day of defeat. 
And so it is that things were hidden to some degree. They were prophesied, they were clear. He's going to make that clear in chapter 2 by talking of these prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. But it was to some degree hidden and yet now has been made manifest. Now it's been made clear. Now you can look at Isaiah 52 and 53 and you can go, aha! They wrestled with that text. It was difficult, but now it's clear. I love the story of somebody talking to a rabbi. Not quite so orthodox, this rabbi. Perhaps not as familiar with the scriptures as he should have been. And the Christian starts reading from Isaiah 53. And the rabbi says, don't come to me with your New Testament. Why? Because you can see Christ so clearly in Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. So clearly referring to Christ with hindsight. Now he's being made manifest. Now in these last times, we can clearly see who he is. And why has this happened? For the sake of you. I don't get it. I honestly don't get it. I'm just, I'm just me. I'm a terrible sinner. I was an enemy of God. Hopeless, lost, dead. And before the world, and perhaps even time itself, was even created, God already had a plan that his son would come and would die so that people like me and you could be called children of God. Don't ever let that get old. Don't ever lose the, that feeling of just, what on earth? How, how can that be? To understand the privilege that we have as Christians. And yet, in this whole context, he's talking about, you're in exile, conduct yourselves, fear of God. We're just constantly wanting to be of this world, and we don't understand that all of this, what was hidden from before time, what's now been revealed for the sake of you. Just be blown away by that. Let it minister to your soul. In the dark times, cling on to it. In the good times, rejoice in it. Just hold it. That we are so privileged and we are so honored that for our sake, for our sake, he has been, been made manifest. Who through, that's us, who is us, through him are believers in God. It's not... You know, and, and this is where we need to understand. I mean, isn't this passage just wonderful, by the way? If you ever get sick of the arguing between, you know, the sovereignty of God and the, the responsibility of man. I mean, it's all here, isn't it? You know, you have to conduct yourselves a certain way. But you're believers through him. This is his work that you are believers of God. Through him, we're believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. That's the manifestation. That it wasn't seen, it was hidden. The disciples ran away. The, the enemies of God rejoiced. And then he raised from the dead. Boom. Now you can see. Now you understand why he went to the cross. Now it becomes clear. Now it's manifest. It's in that point, the raising of him from the dead that glorifies him. Uh, you know, you thinking I hope of Philippians 2 and how Christ humbled himself even to death, death on a cross. And then God does what? Therefore God super exalts him, highly exalts him above everyone, every name. That exaltation, that turnaround comes through the resurrection and Christ is glorified. Now who glorifies him? God glorifies him. 
The Father glorifies the Son through raising him from the dead. You see, it's interesting, just as an aside here, that when you're dealing with a predominantly Jewish audience, that there is here in these concluding verses of this section a real encouragement to them that faith in Christ is not apostasy to God. Bear in mind, that's exactly what their Jewish friends would have been telling them. You're going off and you're following Christ, you're in a different religion, you're in some sort of cult. What was this all about? We're Jews, we do things this way. And what Peter says is that through Christ, we're believers in Yahweh. We're believers in God. Through Christ, we are following the true God. Not doing the futile stuff of our forefathers, being distracted from God by all these religious rules and regulations, but we are, we are following God by following Christ. And so God raises him from the dead and gives him glory, and now we end on this last little phrase, so that. Here's your reason. And, and by the way, if you're... Those of you who like to pick over the text and you're careful about your grammar and what have you, bear in mind there's one big command here. Conduct yourself. Okay? Verse, uh, verse 17, conduct yourself. That's the command. Everything else kind of modifies. You conduct yourself with fear, knowing that. Um, and, and it's kind of leading through to this point that the conduct, the way that we walk, the... Um, and the, the manifesting of Christ all comes to this, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the end goal. When, when we talk about Christ ransoming us, when we talk about Christ being made manifest, when we talk about God raising Christ from the dead, that this is, this is so that our faith and our hope is in God. Which is what? That's how we conduct ourselves. The faith and hope in God is essentially synonymous with how we conduct ourselves. I know there's a whole bunch of things we do and a whole bunch of things we don't do, but really the Christian life is about having faith and hope in God. Now, I understand in this day and age where words like faith and love and hope are just bandied around with very little connection to their biblical meanings, we need to remind ourselves of what this means. Faith is not an intellectual agreement. Our faith is in God means that though we walk through the fire, we trust him and we trust his ways. So when the world says, oh, you know, obviously you do this in this situation, and the Bible says, no, you do that, and everything that makes logical sense in this day and age suggests not doing what God says, we have our faith in God. We trust what he says. We don't simply trust what he says that, oh, if I do it God's way, things will work out better for me, because it might not. It might work out a lot worse for you. But you're going to do it anyway, because you fear him. And so having faith in God affects how we conduct ourselves. We trust him. When he says this is the right way, it's the right way. And so we, we live that way. Trusting in God, having faith in God, do not be shallow evangelicals who somehow think that faith is, yeah, I believe in Jesus, so kind of, I'm a Christian, and you know, I kind of read my Bible, and I, and I believe the Bible is true, and that that is somehow faith. Faith in God is saying, I trust you, and I trust your ways. And you cannot divorce that or separate that from how we live our lives day to day, in every sense. And we have faith in God, and we have hope in God. And we come back to where we've been for so much of this book. The, the irony is, is that to live correctly now, our eyes need to be off the now. That our hope is in God. Yeah, but if, if you do this, people might say, then you're going to be worse off financially. If you do this, then people will treat you badly. If you do this, 
you're going to lose out in this area and that area. There will be things that you could have had that you won't have. Your life is going to be harder. You're going to make things worse for yourself. And you say, yeah, but do you know what I have to come? Do you know what I'm going to ultimately have? Do you know that when this life that is but a breath is past, that he who judges impartially will judge me according to my deeds and reward me, and everything that I do, every decision I make, will not be unseen. And though my sins will be covered by the blood of Christ, he will reward me for my faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you understand what I have to come? See, that's what it means to have your hope in God. It means you're prepared to walk through the fire now. It means you're prepared to suffer now. It means you're prepared to lose out now. It means you're prepared to suffer abuse now, to be treated badly now. It means you're prepared to walk whatever trial you are called to walk through because your eyes are on that inheritance and that nothing can take that away. That is yours. That is yours in Christ. And there are glories to come that will shine so brightly that we will wonder why we were distracted by the futility of this world. Friends, when we take a step back from this passage and we look at it as a whole, I hope that you see these few simple truths. We're exiles. This world is futile and pointless and meaningless and we need to be prepared to live lives in the context of First Peter that might involve lots of suffering and struggle because we are going to do what's right, live the right way, live according to God's ways. We're going to be distinct from everybody else around us. Whatever that means, however hard that might be. Why? Because our faith, our trust, and our hope Our eyes are on God. That's how we live our lives. May we go out from this place and may we live our lives with faith and hope in God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this rich passage of scripture. We thank you for this reminder. I know I'm so easily distracted by this world, the things of this world, the promises of this world. They shine like fool's gold. They glint. Satan appears as an angel of light. We're distracted by things that are ultimately futile. Father, let that not be so of us. May we make a difference for you, for your cause, for your gospel, for your glory. May we live as you call us to live. May we conduct ourselves in a way that is as distinct and holy as you are. And Lord, we know that that calling is going to lead to suffering, to struggles, to trials. But may our our faith and our hope be in you. May our faith and our hope always be in you. May this world pass us by. May our eyes be upon you and upon your risen son whom you have glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.